It's pretty hard to believe that it's November now. It's November 1st. It seems like these past few months have just flown by. And as we are into the fall now, and we, uh, for some people, it's already Christmas season, but as we enter into the, the holiday season, uh, it's a vivid reminder, I think, with the, the releases of new technology and new cars and all these new commercials we're seeing of the world in which we live being one of progress and upgrades. Our society is constantly advancing in areas like technology and medicine and science, and we've been conditioned as a culture to believe that new equals better, that if it's new, it's superior. As a result, we're constantly looking for the latest phone or the most up-to-date car or piece of equipment or really the newest anything and everything. This desire for innovation has also impacted the church. Over the last 50 years, there's been an explosion of ideas for how to modernize our ways of doing church and for calling the church to change and adapt with our culture. And what's more, the current pandemic has raised unprecedented questions about the way that we live in this world. Many are claiming that there's going to have to be permanent changes to the way that we engage in business and education and trade and so much more. And so likewise, some are suggesting that the church needs to have a fundamental rethinking of the way that it operates. And if the church was just another man-made institution, this would be totally okay. We would, of course, want to become more relevant and more in keeping with the development of our society. But the church is not a man-made institution. It is created by God. Therefore, we're not free to do with it what we wish. We can't just adapt and change things because the culture is telling us to. Our present circumstances, no matter how extreme or unparalleled, do not change the nature of the church. The church is whatever God says it is. This is actually advantageous for us because we don't have to wonder about what God thinks of the church or what his plan is. He tells us quite clearly in the scriptures what he has for the church and what he has established it to be. According to the Bible, God has a plan for the church which began before the foundations of the world and has been carried out throughout history to this present day and will one day culminate with the return of Christ. As Christ himself says in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Thankfully, Jesus isn't chilling up in heaven, watching the COVID outbreak occur and scratching his head wondering, what am I going to do now? That really changes things. The church of God, which was established by Christ and given life by the Spirit, remains unmoved despite these extraordinary times. If it's true that our Lord has a specific design for his church, and that we shouldn't just shift with the waves of culture, then it's probably a good idea for us to know what this plan is. We must ask what God's Word tells us about His intentions and values and will for 
the church. And that's exactly what we're attempting to do in this new sermon series. We began last week, and we're going to have five more sermons covering the topic of ecclesiology, or the doctrine of the church. Last week, we began by asking the question, what is the church? We saw that the Bible uses the term church in two different ways. It can use it to refer either to a specific congregation, which gathers in a unique location, or it can use it to refer to the totality of God's people within the world, throughout the world, uh, across all time and all places, and that would be the universal church. And so we focused on the universal church, particularly in the book of Ephesians, asking what it tells us about the nature of the church. And so this week, we're going to focus on the other half of that, the local church, particular gatherings of Christians in specific locations. We will continue this question of essence or what is the local church? What is it that makes a church a church? From the start here, I want to offer a definition, and then we'll walk through it piece by piece. This is going to be a bit of a different sermon than usual. Instead of walking through a passage and providing you with the truth statement for the passage, instead, we're going to really survey what does the Bible as a whole teach us about the church. And so we're going to be talking about a bunch of different texts. And so I want to give you this definition to begin with, and we'll unpack it. So let me read it for you. It'll be up on the screen. A local church is a group of believers who regularly gather in the name of Christ as a Trinitarian, covenantal, confessional, and eschatological community. There's some really big words in there, and it might not all make sense right away. That's going to be up on the screen for the rest of the sermon, and so you can continue to reference that and write it down if you wish, and I'll explain all of these things. But again, I'll repeat this statement. A local church is a group of believers who regularly gather in the name of Christ as a Trinitarian, covenantal, confessional, and eschatological community. All right, so we'll tackle this piece by piece on the first half of this statement. A group of believers who regularly gather in the name of Christ. If we look at this first piece, a group of believers, though it might seem pretty obvious to us, we should remind ourselves that the church is not a building. It's a people. In fact, that's how most people use the term. If you're not a believer is, oh, you're going to the church. You're going to a building. And we even see it just in how we we talk about, oh, I'm going to church. And we refer to the building. And that's not necessarily wrong to use it in that sense, but we need to understand that biblically, the church is a people. The church is made up of a special people. They're those who together are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is 1 Peter 2.9. Peter and Paul both write that the church is a spiritual building, This doesn't necessarily mean it's a physical or literal one. Another thing worth noting is that the word group here in the definition implies more than one person. In order for a church to be a church, there must be multiple people. Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, 
For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Now, this doesn't mean that any gathering of two or more Christians is a church. For instance, catching up at Starbucks with a group of your friends or watching a movie with your small group doesn't mean you're the church. And this is a church service. This verse is often taken and applied wrongly to any gathering of Christians that uh, we will just now call a church because there's more than, more than two Christians. This is not what it means in context. And what we'll say for now is that uh, the church is a lot more than just two or three Christians, but it's not less than that. You need at least multiple Christians to make a church. And this is actually a beautiful piece of the church's design that God has chosen to make the church a group of people who are from all different places, all different backgrounds, all different ages, all different ethnicities. He brings them together in the church and binds them through their union in Christ. And this is uh, beautiful for, for several reasons. Let me read a quote from Kevin Van Hooser who articulates this well. He says, The truth of the gospel is intrinsically incarnate. It's not abstract but concrete, and it takes a physical company of the gospel to communicate it. The church is the enacted story of forgiven and transformed sinners. We need a company of the gospel because it is impossible for a one-man show to act out love for others. And so to portray the gospel to the world, we need multiple people in a church, and that is a part of God's good design. The second aspect is that they regularly gather. At its most basic level, the church is an assembly or a gathering. This is what the word translated as church in the New Testament means on its most basic level. It refers to a gathering. In Greek, the word is ekklesia. It's from where we get ecclesiology. You can hear it in there, ecclesia, ecclesiology, the study of the church. And so throughout the New Testament, this word, church, can refer to either the gathering of the people or the people who are characterized by gathering. I'll say that again. When it's referring to the local church, this term can be used to refer either to the gathering of the people or the people who are characterized by gathering. So Paul can say, for instance, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, when you come together as a church, referring to the gathering of the people. Or he can say at the beginning of the letter, to the church of God that is in Corinth referring to the people who are characterized by regularly gathering. He does this all throughout 1 Corinthians, especially in chapters 11 through 14. The point, though, is, is that, in other words, for a group of Christians to be a church, they need to gather. They need to be characterized by gathering in person. This is what we would call a sine qua non of the local church. It's an essential. Without regularly gathering together, this group of people is not a church in the biblical sense. The local church then is necessarily a group of people who assemble in a specific way, in a specific place. This is important when we look at all of the letters in the New Testament. There's 21 of them, and almost all of them are written to specific local churches or to 
uh, a few local churches. And even the ones that are written to individuals, are, uh, include, they, they include instructions that are expected to be read and received by the entire community. The church is in mind. It's not just about individuals. Now, the fact that a church must gather doesn't mean that this group of Christians is only the church when they're together on Sunday mornings. Because they've identified themselves in this way as a group of Christians who regularly gather together, we can continue to refer to those individuals as a church even when they're not gathered on Sundays. If you've been tracking with this so far, you may have realized that this has some significant ramifications for many 21st century practices within Christian churches. I'll say up front that there are exceptions to what I'm about to say, and we'll return to this near the end of the sermon, but one thing that we can say in light of the fact that in the Bible a church gathers together is that online church isn't church. According to God's word, there's no such thing as a church that does not physically assemble together regularly. This would mean, then, that any so-called church that only connects online doesn't fit the biblical definition. This would rule out attending only via live stream, since this is not actually a form of physically gathering. The biblical model is a single in-person gathering that takes place with all those who are part of a given local church. Again, we'll return to this because there are exceptions, as we will see, for things like global pandemics. The third facet of this definition I want to highlight is in the name of Christ. A church is an assembly, but any assembly is not a church. This is because an indispensable aspect of the church's essence is that it gathers in the name of Christ. Gathering in Jesus' name is a prerequisite for the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit which makes a church alive. It's what transforms a collection of sinners into a congregation of saints. And so the name of Jesus Christ unequivocally identifies the person around whom the church is gathering. We're dealing with Emmanuel, God with us, and his name. The church is defined by its Lord. The Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, resurrected on the third day, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, a gathering of professing Christians is only a true church if it is built upon the Jesus that is attested to by God's word. Now for the second half of our definition. This is where the big words come in. The local church is a Trinitarian, covenantal, confessional, and eschatological community. Tackle these one at a time. First, by Trinitarian. What I mean is that the church is a creation of the Trinity, the God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We saw this last week in Ephesians, really from beginning to end, but especially in chapter 1, 
Throughout the entire book, Ephesians shows us that the existence of the church is only in connection to the saving activity of the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father initiates the entirety of our salvation. We belong to him. We are his people. We've been elected and called by his grace. All of this has been done in Christ, the Messiah, who paid for our sins on the cross. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom in which the church participates. He cannot be separated from his bride, from the body. Christ dwells with his people still in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in the church, which serves as its temple. The Spirit grants spiritual rebirth to the church, and it fills and empowers the body with spiritual gifts, and it serves as a guarantee or a down payment of our future inheritance. A central mark, then, of a true local church is that it exists by and for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God revealed in the Bible. As Ephesians 1 mentions three times, the church exists to the praise of his glorious grace. The next piece is that the church is a covenantal community. We use that word a lot in the church. It's found all throughout the Bible. The term covenant, it simply refers to an an enduring agreement which establishes a relationship between two parties. This involves uh, some sort of commitment to specific promises or obligations on the party uh, or on the part of one or both of these parties. And so a covenant, an enduring agreement that establishes a relationship between two parties. First and foremost, the church exists then in covenant relationship with God. This covenant has been paid for by Christ, applied by the Spirit. Really, the whole Bible can be seen as a covenant story. This is how God has always chosen to relate to his people, is in and through covenants. In the Old Testament, Israel received the covenants. They were the chosen people of God. In the New Testament, it's the church, which consists of both believing Jews and Gentiles that holds this privileged relationship. Like Israel, the church is comprised of God's chosen people. They belong to Yahweh by virtue of the covenant that he has established with them. This is why Peter can describe the church using covenant language that's found in Exodus 19. And as we saw last week, Paul in Ephesians 2 writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. Christ, through his blood, brings together a people who are in covenant relationship with him and also with each other. This is the second aspect of the church's covenantal nature because not only is this covenantal relationship vertical between God and his people, it's horizontal. It exists between fellow Christians. Fellow Christians gather together in covenant relationship with each other. This is also found in Ephesians 2, which shows that Christ's death not only overcomes the hostility which exists between God, between God and humanity, but it also 
rids the hostility which is found between fellow human beings. This is one of the most beautiful truths of the gospel, that we are reconciled to God and also to each other. In the church, God takes people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, ages, genders, ethnicities, who before Christ are totally at odds with each other, and he unites them through his son's work in the the spirit. By nature of the shared fellowship that they have with Christ, believers partake in a mutual covenant with God and with one another, which entails a responsibility to their covenant partners. It's in this covenant that believers live in reconciled relationships with God and their Christian siblings. It's a special people who have been called out and set apart from the world, and it's in their very nature to live in these committed relationships with one another. It's only through the coming together of Christians in a mutual covenant that a church is established. It's essential to the church's nature. In keeping with this, then, are the sacraments or the ordinances which have been given to the church. Christ established baptism and communion as the signs for members of this new covenant community. Baptism into the name of Jesus, signifying participation in the death and resurrection of Christ, is what marks the entrance of a Christian into the church. Romans 6 and Colossians 2. Jesus commands his followers to be baptized in Matthew 28. And the New Testament expects that all believers are baptized. The bread and the cup, or the Lord's Supper, is instituted in Luke 22 and the other gospel accounts at the Last Supper. It's an ongoing sign whereby believers affirm one another as members of Christ's body as they renew their covenant with God and each other, and they also anticipate Christ's future return. We see this expressed in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul displays how vital this is for the local church. He writes, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing or a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Flowing from the covenantal nature of the church is the church being confessional. This also is connected to the the sacraments or the ordinances. By nature, Christians are those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead and they're saved, Romans 10.9. One of the implications of this is that the church is made up of believers. Many today have made the mistake of trying to make the church about unbelievers. They want our gathering to be evangelistic opportunities where we have a chance to show non-believers that they belong even before they believe. For a number of reasons, this is not a great idea. A better idea is what is described by Jesus in John 13. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
as uh, Portland Pastor Michael Lawrence says, the church is to be a community that profoundly believes the gospel so that its life is marked by a love for one another. Such a community, Jesus says, will provoke those on the outside not only to recognize that they are on the outside, but to desire to come in. When individuals confess with Ephesians 4 that there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, they're united by the Holy Spirit. A mutual proclamation of Christ as Lord means believers share in fellowship with God and also with one another. The gathering of the church, then, at its core, is a confessional activity where we profess our faith in the Savior and Messiah. The church collectively declares its faith in Christ through celebration of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, through sermons and prayer and hymns, and ultimately through its love for one another. Christians speak the gospel to each other and to the world. This is what it means to be a church. Finally, this last element of our definition is that the church is an eschatological community. What I mean by this is that the church both anticipates the consummation of God's kingdom in all its fullness in the future, and it also manifests that kingdom in the here and now. The church does this by proclaiming both the present and the future reign of God as king. His kingdom is both present and future, and so therefore the church is a participant in the kingdom in this already not yet fashion. It's already here and yet we await its consummation. On the one hand, this is connected with Jesus' first coming, where he inaugurated the kingdom. It's a reality into which people can enter and are called to live. But on the other hand, we also await the eschatological aspect of the kingdom, the future-only peace, where at Christ's return, all the promises of God find their fulfillment and the new heavens and new earth are ushered in. And so it's important to understand the church within the context of the kingdom of God because what the church is, in short, is determined by what the church is to become. As an eschatological community, a future-oriented community, the local church is a fellowship that pioneers in the present the principles that characterize God's kingdom in the future. You see, the church is not merely a place where we sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. Instead, the church is the gathering of those who are in union with Christ and who, as that gathering, are in anticipation of heaven. The church is a place to begin practicing what will come in the future because Christ is among us. The church is a local embassy of God's coming kingdom, a parable of the kingdom of heaven localized on earth. And so in this way, the church is not just a visible manifestation of the universal church. The local church is an actual anticipation and realization of the future gathering of the entire people of God 
in the new heavens and new earth. At the beginning, I mentioned how the current pandemic has caused some people to suggest that maybe the church needs to change. Even for Christians who are committed to a biblical understanding of the church or who, who want to submit to what it tells us we should be and do, these restrictions and regulations that we face have forced us to, at least for the time being, alter some of the things that we have done in the past. I want to, for a few moments, think about how we relate as the church and as what the Bible tells us the church is to be to this present moment. First, remember that the church is what Scripture says it is. Nothing changes that. The fact that the church must now implement some short-term changes due to the pandemic does not change anything at its essence. It doesn't mean that the church needs to stay this way forever. Here's a helpful analogy that I'm drawing from Pastor Jonathan Lehman. He says, we can liken the church to a broken ankle. The broken ankle is still an ankle. The challenge is simply to figure out how to hobble on it for the time being. I stated earlier that the church, according to the Bible, is a gathering that happens in person. It's a physical gathering. I also pointed out that a true local church practices the Lord's Supper and baptism. And this might seem problematic then based on how we are now functioning. We've implemented live streaming. We have pressed pause on participating in the ordinances of baptism and communion. And so does this mean that we're no longer a church? The short answer is no. We are still a true church, and that hasn't changed. While we hobble along in these unusual times, the church is biblically permitted to temporarily use what are perhaps unconventional or less than ideal methods, and they still constitute a legitimate church. So we can do things a bit differently than we normally would and still be a true church. The key word, though, is temporarily. Let me use another analogy The local church is like a baseball team. The Seattle Mariners, for instance, have to gather and play in order to be a team. But that being said, we can still refer to the Mariners as a team even when they're not gathered together to play. For instance, if we say the team drove in separate cars to the stadium, they're not all together in the same car. They're not even at the stadium for the purpose of playing, and yet we still characterize them as a team because they have been characterized by their gathering together to play baseball. In other words, we can use the word team to refer both to the people gathered to play or to the people who are characterized by gathering to play. And that's why earlier I made this distinction with the church. Sometimes the the word church can be used to talk about the people who are characterized by their gathering, or it can be referring to the gathering itself. If you think back to April when COVID kind of came full force and Major League Baseball, for one, pressed pause on its season, the Mariners would have been barred from playing together. During that time, though, we wouldn't have said that they are not a team. We would have instead just noted that 
they were facing unusual and extraordinary times. It's similar, I think, to, uh, to us as a church during this time. This doesn't mean that because we're, uh, we had to press pause on gathering in person and we haven't been able to participate in the Lord's Supper and baptism that we're not a true church. No, we are. Extraordinary times allow for extraordinary measures. So long as we recognize those seasons are extraordinary and uh, temporary and exceptional. There is a difference between short-term accommodations and permanent structures. Short-term accommodations don't redefine the church. Like a broken ankle doesn't mean that it's no longer an ankle. When the ankle is broken, though, you put a cast on and you walk with a crutch, but you don't want to live permanently with these things. They're helpful for a little while, but eventually you'll move past them. And so, though many of our accommodations that we've had to make are not ideal and we long for the time when we can get rid of them, they are temporary, and so they don't threaten our existence as a church. The goal in all of these is to love our neighbors and to love God and obey Him. And so, we try to do all of this while following as closely as we can the biblical model and attempting to point ourselves back to it. This is in part why we're doing a series like this, so that we're reminded of what the church is and what it means for us to be the church, especially in such unusual times. Ultimately, these short-term adaptations should cause us to long not only for the day when we can fully gather together as our church, as Harvest Community Church, but for that great day when we will be completely gathered with all the saints throughout all history in the presence of our Savior. And this is what we find in Revelation 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I want to close by encouraging us to hold tightly onto this future. Don't lose heart in this season, though things are not what we wish for them to be and things are not what they ultimately will be. We can still trust in the God who has given his son to us and who will give us all things. God has, in the church, designed a beautiful and, and unconventional in the eyes of the world community where we display his glory and his majesty and his wisdom. So I hope that together, as a church moving forward, albeit in strange and unique circumstances, we commit to together being faithful to the body of Christ and faithful to our God and living out what it means for us to 
be the church. I pray that our Lord would help us to, uh, as, as Matt said here at the beginning, uh, view the church in the way that the Scripture describes it, that we would have eyes to see the way that God does. We would look past all the imperfections. We would look past the, uh, the broken ankle and the cast and see what God has done through the blood of Christ by the Spirit for us. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your amazing wisdom and majesty and glory that you have revealed in your plan which stretches from before the foundations of the earth to the culmination of history. What a privilege and how unbelievable is it that you would include us in this plan. We ask that you would give us here at Harvest a vision for what it means to be your church. Would you help us to love the church and to cherish it as we know Christ does? Help us to love one another and to view one another rightly, to see one another not as sinful and broken only, but as creatures who are being recreated and, and sanctified as a part of the church. Would we view your church in all its splendor, all the splendor that we can, at least here on earth, as we await the final day when we will see it in glory. We praise you for your work among us and ask that you would continue to do so. It's in the name of our Savior that we pray. Amen.